On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, I'll tell you who will represent the franchise at the draft lottery, discuss an option Pacer fans may have to watch games next season, and then I'll be joined by Caitlin Cooper of ND Cornrows. And welcome into the Fieldhouse Files, the podcast where I take you behind the scenes with the Pacers, talk to individuals on and around the team, and tell you what you need to know. I had a really good conversation with Caitlin Cooper that you'll hear on this podcast. Uh, she's really good at the X's and O's, the coaching, the analysis uh, from a basketball standpoint beyond you know just the reporting, the day-to-day, the news, the health updates, that stuff that I almost get too caught up in, especially the last several years when there has just been so many transaction news updates, player signings, and that type of thing. But whether it's play calls or what a player did or did not do on a certain situation, a lot of good analysis. Analysis from Caitlin. I'm sure you've read her work at IndyCornrows.com or seen her work uh, on Twitter as well, at C. Cooper. Before I get to that conversation, though, a few things I want to touch on. First, a couple of big stories last week that got some traction. First of all, reporting here from myself that Kelly Kroskoff, the Pacers' assistant general manager the last four years, will be their onstage representative at the draft lottery coming up on Tuesday. That's on May 17th. In a ballroom in Chicago, I will be there. Look forward to reporting on that for you. Uh, Chad Buchanan, the general manager, will be the one in the drawing room. But the onstage representative is kind of the face representing the team and such. Last year, it was Nancy Leonard. It was done remotely, virtually. She was in the entryway of her Zionsville home. I wrote about that on fieldhousefiles.com if you want to Google it and read it about why and how she was chosen. It was Herb Simon and Chad Buchanan reaching out to her uh, asking. And so Kelly, who has been with the franchise since 1999, did an excellent job with the Fever for 19 years, had an incredibly successful 2001 draft, taking Tamika Catchings third overall, a Hall of Fame player, one of the best to ever do it in the women's game. And so they're hoping for a little bit of luck, and they are absolutely due for some, especially as that great record of theirs comes to an end, not drafting inside the top 10 since 1989. They'll finally have that single-digit draft pick. The other big news item was potentially how you could watch Pacer games moving forward. That's because Bally Sports announced recently its plans to launch a standalone streaming app. Big surprise, right? You're seeing so many networks do this on their own, right? Whether it's Paramount or HBO Max and and those sorts of things. Peacock. Well, they're launching their own because, number one, it could be lucrative for these networks. It kind of removes the middleman like a Comcast, a Spectrum, an AT&T, which have Bally Sports this way. If you say would subscribe to this app, they would get all the money. But this would potentially give fans another option. I say potentially because the Pacers' deal with the regional network expired after this past season. But should they continue that partnership? Viewers like myself who drop cable and have opted instead for another service like YouTube TV, like Hulu, and do not get Bally Sports, or they don't subscribe to anything at all, what you would be able to do is pay $20 per month or slightly less on an annual plan to watch games on their app, which, by the way, we don't even know what it looks like or how it functions because it is not launched yet. But it would give you 
access to Pacer games would not give you access to the other teams on their Bally Sports Network, like the Cavs, like the Pistons, like the Bucks. It would just give you access to Bally Sports and, and what it would mean locally with the Pacers. And you would hope soon they would also offer additional content analysis beyond the games as well. One suggestion. I would make for them is to produce a weekly magazine type of show. You don't see that much anymore. There are a couple Colts options for that. The Colts produced it. A couple of the local TV stations produce all of that. But I think that would be a, an add-on, a nice, interesting, informative outlet and give fans another reason to subscribe beyond the games, especially as casual fans try to keep up during an NFL season. And then lastly, I just wanted to highlight Tyrese Halliburton's big weekend, his involvement at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. He was invited to serve as the Grand Marshal for the Grand Prix IndyCar race that, by the way, ended up being in a complete rainstorm. Drivers said they couldn't even see, but it did make entertaining. Unfortunately, uh, no one got hurt. But Tyrese, he gave the command for drivers to start their engines, then rode around in a two-seater pace car with legend Mario Andretti to begin the race. What an opportunity um, for him. But he talked about loving hard, whether it was Sacramento or now Indy, in just three months being on the Pacers and here in Indianapolis. Not only is he working out here in Indy for much of the offseason, he's getting involved in the community, which he said he would do, and I thought this was a really good start. All right, up next is a good, thorough conversation on the Pacers, the state of the franchise, what we've seen the last couple of years, what we need to see this summer from the franchise, and moving forward. I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. It's Caitlin's first time on the podcast, so I appreciate her willing to come on, and you'll get to know her as well, her love for basketball, uh, passion for writing, and it's funny, I planned to go about 40 minutes, started to wrap it up, then she fired some questions at me. I tried to wrap it up once more, and we just kept going. It's over an hour conversation, but this is one that is absolutely worth your time, so I hope that you enjoy it. All right, as promised, I'm now joined finally by Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrows, the Indy Cornrows podcast, joining Fieldhouse Files here. And, and Caitlin, you've been on the beat quite a while, but I kind of forget how far you extend back. At what point did you start writing about the Pacers? Yeah, I do go a ways back. Yeah, the first season that I started, I mean, I actually started out doing fan posts, if you can believe it or not. Mm -hmm. um, that used to be a function over at Vox's site. So it was the 2013-14 season. I started writing just some sample pieces. And then Tom, who is our site manager, was like, hey, if you want to come on and start writing things for our actual main page, we'd love to have you, which was very kind of him to offer. And I started writing more full time that season. But it, it wasn't really stuff like I do now. It was more like me filling in like news desk type stuff that came up throughout that year with a few analysis pieces here and there. But I mean, it took me a, a long while of writing there for people to kind of start recognizing what I was doing and, and seeing that I was a regular contributor on Pacers Twitter and over at our site. So there's that. And also it takes time to establish your voice and, and also maybe your mission or what you want to provide, right? Like, do you want to write daily coverage, breakdowns, like all that kind of stuff I, I see. And I know for me, like I kind of feel like I'm starting to get it now 10 years in. So, um, if that helps at all, like it takes a minute to figure it out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I had one of our editors who's now going to be an editor over the athletic Mike Prada when I did a piece, yeah. uh, a freelance piece at SB nation's NBA main site, when he was still there, talked to me a little bit about that and was like, I think that you're, you know, really starting to find your own writing voice and establishing that and understanding what your niche and where you can provide content that's different because like you know you have access you do a great job with all of your reporting that's not something I'm going to do re working remotely at home so I have to be able to find you know 
different angles of something that people might not notice of where I can create a little bit more of a differentiation. By the way, I should tell you, there's been several visiting beat writers that have come in and, you know, we got new media seats this past season and you're trying to, you know, see who shows up and uh, several different people are like, okay, and which one, where's Caitlin here? Where's she sitting? I'm like, eh, sorry to break the news. She, she's not here. So uh, <laughs> I think you would be welcome for sure if you ever did venture out there and uh, come join us on Media Row. I would, I'm sure you'd get that invitation, no doubt. That's funny because when um, Jared Weiss at the Athletic Boston came to town to write that story, I talked to him shortly after that, and he had said that he had talked to you. Yep. <laughs> I was like, is, is Caitlin here? Because I kind of wanted to talk to her. And I was like, I'm not there. Yeah, extenuating circumstances family-wise with some COVID stuff the last two years that's made it um, difficult to be in some public spaces at times. But seems like that's coming to you know a little bit better front as we head into next season. Yeah, absolutely. I sure hope so. Because I will say the last, let's say, three months of this season from my standpoint was just refreshing where I could be courtside. I could go down there before games. I could not wear a mask. I could see facial expressions, which is huge because it, it kind of it can be a tell when a, a player is talking and, and things like that. I try to read quiet things and, and things like that that go along with what a player may or may not be saying in a moment because if they have a smirk you know that type of thing nonetheless there's a lot of places we could begin but I think the place I want to start is the state of the franchise from a macro perspective with this Pacers team and right now I don't see an identity I don't see a culture do you and, and if not what do you think that maybe should look like moving forward for this team yeah I mean I think we can kind of point at that over the last two years really I mean, in terms of, you know, that we can talk about the offense or the defensive end. It feels especially <laughs> this year that in a lot of games, even before the trades happened, that it was more so them trying to morph their identity to what their opponent was doing, at least from my standpoint, and trying to adjust. And I do give the coaching staff credit because throughout the year they did make a lot of adjustments, I would say more so than the prior two um, staffs did to try to make things work with various players and who was available. But yeah, I mean, I think headed into this offseason, and we'll get into this later, I'm sure, too, but the number one priority has to be the defensive end of the floor. Um, what happened there and, and being able to establish, like, what is it exactly that we want to take away? What do we want to be about, you know, even just from a pillar standpoint? I mean, they started this season, if we look back at it on media day, and said that their main two goals for this season were defense and togetherness. And I would defer some of the togetherness to you and other people that were around the team every day. Um, and the various iterations of what the team were to identify if that's something that they actually accomplished or not. But the other goal wasn't exactly accomplished. So that's got to be at the top of the list. Yeah. And part of that, again, I, I would amend your top of the list and, and add the obvious with being health because it's been exhausting for everybody. Like this year, almost 400 games lost due to injury. Like you just got to have more player availability. And that goes into kind of what you were saying and the bigger picture with defense, like even the way they finished the season, you can kind of understand it was towards the lottery and it was towards getting fresh faces in there. And in doing so, you sacrificed a lot and you couldn't really have high expectations with everything. But so much, yeah, I know I keep going back on this, but there was ever since Dan Burke left, there hasn't been defense. In my, and then even last year, it's funny because last year was all about the offense, right? And it was actually pretty good, impressive. Like, the fast pace, the transition points, that type of thing, uh, launching three-pointers. Like, everybody was told, just launch at your free will, basically. Like, put them up. And this year, a little bit different, but it did go along with what Rick did say in the preseason in terms of I don't have a, you know, a exact playing style or what I want to do. I'm going to adapt to my players. And so far, like you said, I think that had been the case. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look back at last year, it's kind of curious when you think back because when Nate Bjorken was introduced, most of what he talked about was the defensive end of the floor. It was. Which which really wasn't the end of the floor that necessarily needed to be remade, but he talked about, like, we're going to be aggressive and disruptive. And to their credit, like, if you look back at it, I don't really think that the system that was implemented necessarily made sense for that roster but I understood what they were trying to accomplish. They wanted to funnel everything to the rim. They wanted to be this high ball pressure team and be very disorienting, rotating and whirling through a lot of different schemes so that when they got to the playoffs, they could be you know, prepared to throw some of those out. And I will play devil's advocate a little bit because if I didn't, I would be hypocritical and not admitting it. Like I was somewhat critical over the back end of the bubble season over what the Pacers defense was even under Nate McMillan and Dan Burke because they had had some slippage And two, like you can look back at past playoff series when they were in the 18-19 series with Boston, they came out and I think it was game two and and started switching everything, which was good. Like you could tell that it caught Boston off guard because, oh, they're not a team that switches and we kind of have to adjust to this. But after that, you know, initial shock value wore off, it became very clear that, oh, yeah, the Pacers aren't a team that switch and, and they have no experience doing this. And you're trying to do it for the first time in a high stakes situation. And then when they played Miami in the bubble, there were times where they needed to switch. They needed to be switching some of those handoffs with Duncan Robinson and Bam Adebayo. And there wasn't a lot of adjustments being made there. Cause it's like, this is who we are and this is what we do. And there were times where I felt like they needed to be a little bit more proactive. So from the front office's perspective, maybe seeing some of that led them to think that they needed to have a bit of a makeover, not necessarily for the regular season and the reliable floor that the Dan Burke, Nate McMillan stuff certainly provided for years and what the you know baseline effort was going to be from night to night, but maybe so that they would be a little bit more prepared when you need to be able to do more things in the playoffs. Because, I mean, you can look right now. I should have looked before I got on here and looked at Synergy. Like almost every team in the playoffs is running at least one kind, maybe more than one kind of zone. We're seeing a lot of pressure defenses, a lot of trapping, um, and it, just how collective it is too, that it's not just about one individual player. When you watch the Miami Heat or you watch the Boston Celtics, it's about not having any weak links, even more so in certain circumstances than who your strongest links are. So I can kind of understand where the thought process got from. And even like, again, I can look at Rick Carlisle this season and be like, okay, well, he probably evaluated what happened under Nate Bjorken and thought to himself, like, okay, when Miles was off the floor and Sabonis was playing, that defense made no sense for DeMontis Sabonis at the four of the five spot. You can't funnel the league's highest rim frequency with Sabonis at the five. So you could tell early on the adjustment was made. Like when Sabonis is out at the five and when he's at the four, we're going to have him jump out above the level and we're going to be, you know, managing both these schemes at once where we want to keep Miles closer to the rim and we're going to have Sabonis as more of a rim deterrent deterring that from the rim. And again, to Sabonis' credit, he was better at that than he was a year ago. Maybe Orkin tried that some, and he really just couldn't handle it in games where, you know, Miles wasn't playing, whether it was against Luca or Steph Curry or whoever it might be. So um, they tried to mix in different things, but it almost felt at a certain point in time that the defense just kept taking on more and more forms this season. And because of some, you know, holes they have roster wise. And then like, even once the trade happened, it's like, okay, well now we don't need to do the hedge scheme anymore because, you know, Sabonis isn't out there. So we don't have a lot of time to probably put together a whole new defensive scheme mid season. So now we're going to this switch everything scheme. And there was some players on the roster who could do that. And some players I think who struggled with it more. So, um, 
in the end, it felt like they tried about everything. I mean, over yeah. the last three years, I think they've about hit defense bingo if you count up all the different things that they've tried. So I think this summer it's more about simplification, identifying who's going to be on this roster, who's coming back, and what actually fits for those players. Yeah, and then solidifying it and going all in, I think, with what it is. And you did a lot of great points there. I do remember that that Boston series, and right before that I was thrown off. I remember – Talking with DB on the road in Toronto, I was like, what is this zone defense? You are adamantly against it. And he was like, hey, look, we got to evolve a little bit. We got to throw the defense off. And so that's where we're going to have it in our arsenal. I don't know how much we're going to use it. And then that was one of the stories that I wrote in Boston was how they deployed it in the postseason. And I mean, that was just embarrassing. They got swept and you move on to the next year. And, and to your point, yeah, I think the thing Nate Bjorker and I really highlighted in those early days was, yeah, how we're going to try to overwhelm uh, the opponents and catch them off guard and throw all different types of things at them, when in turn, I think they, they confuse themselves more often oh, yeah. than not. And, and more to that point, there were several games, um, I remember you know talking afterwards with guys, and they were like, yeah, we never practiced that. He just drew that up in the huddle, which if you have a really smart team and maybe a group that's been together for a while and has a relationship with that coach, then that becomes impressive, I think. Maybe if the Warriors do something on the fly, but that that seems like a lot so soon with a lot of – there was a lot of roster turnover, I think, too, as well. And, and yeah, to the greater point, I like what you're saying there in terms of you got to figure out this roster, figure out what you want to be about defensively, and, and then – proceed forward with it because if they're going to be about one thing here I think you got to get back to owning that defensive end and what we've seen in the playoffs it scores they're calling more fouls scores are down versus you know as the game slows down and all that and one thing you can lean on is the defense there yeah absolutely I mean I think that that's a good point too about Nate York and I mean I wrote that so again I can't hide from it I wrote their junk defenses are junk for the reasons that you said like you could tell very clearly yeah and that wasn't the greatest season to be trying to run like eight different types of defenses at once when there was virtually no training camp. There weren't as many practices because the schedule was more condensed. And, you know, they're playing that game against the Wizards. And it's like, okay, I don't really want to write something harping about the defense again, but I've left with no choice because, you know, twofold. There's, you know, you watch a box in one possession and it might be Karras not even realizing they're in it. and He's still in man to man and the rest of the team's trying to incorporate it. And they're not exactly sure. Cause I mean, we talk about two, three zone, but not every team sets a two, three zone the same way. So even if you're in a huddle and you're just breaking it out at once and you're like, Hey, go run a two, three zone. Okay. Well, how are you covering the high post in that? Um, where are you, you know, what are the roles and responsibilities within it? How are you angling bodies? Like there's just a lot more that goes into it than telling somebody just to go out there and stand in it. And beyond that, like he ran a lot of different schemes, but they didn't really adjust it to the various different opponents. As in like, you probably don't need to chase Ben Simmons over a stagger screen 30 feet from the basket for the (laughs) sake of funneling him to the rim when that's exactly what he wants you to do. Um, same thing with Russell Westbrook, but yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's, it's, I think there was one possession in the series where the heat were playing the Hawks. And I thought, you know, that's probably somewhat informative for the Pacers, not because they have similar personnel, but like in the way that they shut down Trey young, it's like what I said before, it wasn't just PJ Tucker picking Trey young up 94 feet and then having the benefit of Jimmy Butler and bam being able to switch. It was also how high they were playing in the gaps, how strung together they were. The fact that the help was on time whenever Trey did give the ball up so that, you know, if you're rotating over weak side that that 
defenders there right when they need to be. Um, like I said, I just think defense is becoming a lot more collective. So for me, like I think Miles Turner being healthy will definitely be part of the solution. We know what he's capable of doing as a rim protector, but I don't think it would be, you know, I'm not going to expect wildly different results if there's no other, you know, like I said, a simplification to the scheme and other defensive upgrades made along with that, because I do think that it's, it's becoming more about the whole of the five defenders on the floor than just expecting one person to wave a magic wand. And like, you can look at the series with Utah and kind of see that as well. Like as good as Rudy Gobert is at what he does, he can't plug five holes at once. That was a great, uh, I don't know, film session type thing that people were posting on Twitter, how, you know, he would come in, help off his man, then they'd send it to the corner, give up three. It's like, what do you want him to do? Like, either way, they're probably going to give up a high efficiency shot um, within that. And a lot of times, especially going against Utah in the postseason, you see guys target Rudy. that They want to go after him because I, I think a lot of guys don't respect him come the playoffs from, yeah. from what guys have been saying. But, yeah, a lot of good points there. I do wonder, uh, I'm going with the assumption right now that Miles will be brought back. And then I... From there, I am very curious to see what the defense will look like because I agree it's not an end-all, be-all. Him being back, all right, great. They're top 15 again. Huge asset. He's, it's huge having him back in there. But I think they got too – I mean, it's clear they got too dependent and relied on him. And it's so much of it starts, Caitlin, on the perimeter is so many individual guys just constantly got beat and they had to rely on Miles back there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then that's what you look at. Like, what do they see? Because I don't think I fully know or understand that yet. Because like I said, again, in their defense, after you have a major trade, you're not going to have a lot of time to implement what you want to do. And in some respects, like you look at Isaiah Jackson, he does move very well on the perimeter, but he's not ready to full time play in a drop scheme yet and and use him the way that you would use Miles Turner. So naturally with he and Jalen Smith, you're going to be doing more switching that didn't necessarily fit with Goga. So now if Miles Turner is back, you know, they had made mention last summer, I think around the time of the draft talking about how much more important switching is when you get into playoff series, are you going to be using, you know, miles to switch out? Because when you look at some of the numbers this year, Like it didn't really matter who was at solo five. They gave up at least 115 points per 100, whether it was Miles, Ijax, Goga, Jalen, Sabonis, when they didn't have somebody else out there. And I think some of that might have been a product of the switching because when you have, you know, the five man, even if they can kind of hold their own a little bit in space, if that player that's out on the island passes it to another person and then they attack secondary, there's nobody back there to protect the basket anymore. So then it becomes exactly what you're saying. Like they don't necessarily have a solid point of attack defender, which then made you lean toward more hedging or more switching. But at the same time, if you don't have other guys that can make those rotations behind you, then you've switched miles out there and there's nobody back behind him. And yeah, I do think that the overburdening of him is, is somewhat a thing too, because you know, I pegged earlier and said they were doing some of the hedging because of Sabonis, but the truth be told, when like when Brooklyn came to town, they were having Miles jump out above the level too because of what you're saying. Like they didn't have the point of attack defenders who were going to be able to chase Kyrie Irving or James Harden over. So now, like our rim protectors out 30 feet from the basket, having to be up above the level to try to deter that because you know, again, they were trying to plug holes. That was the thing two years ago, Caitlin. I could not understand, and I'll never forget the stat that Domas traveled the most defensively of any player in the league and that that was like one of the things of Nate I'm like just what are you doing like he's not a great defender as is and you're having him go 35 feet from the basket for what like I I know you were on that too it's like what are we doing here 
Yeah, I mean, especially when he was at the four spot. I mean, I, like yeah. I said, I do give him a little bit of credit this year because I think that his technique on the hedging and just from like, you know, a standpoint of if you can keep the ball away from the rim when he's out there at the five, it makes sense. But again, yeah, like if you're having him out on a switch and he's pressuring, you know, forget who they were playing last year. I think it was the one game against the Bulls when it went to overtime. And I remember, I, yeah, I don't remember which guard it was, but yeah, he was 30 feet out chasing a person clear, you know, pressuring out or they would have, you know, Draymond out there running in action and he'd be pressing up on Draymond Green 30 feet from the basket. It's like, you, when know, you know, he's not shooting it. Yeah. Yeah. He's not going to shoot it. So why is this a thing? Exactly right. Now, since we're on Sabonis and, and such, I'm curious to get how you felt at that trade deadline when Pacers were able to swing a move um, and get Tyrese Halliburton, which I felt was really important because they haven't had a true point guard in my eyes for a couple decades. I go back to Jamal Tensley. Some have said Darren Collison to me. I can kind of accept that. George Hill definitely was not a true point guard. But I think with this franchise, it's so important, really with anyone, to have that head of the snake, so to speak, with Tyrese. And, and I love what he is, not just as the player, but as a communicator, as a guy in the locker room that everybody likes. His personality shines. But more to that point, he's, he's productive. And I thought the Pacers got really good value at the trade deadline, not just with Tyrese, but the other moves. What do you think? Oh yeah, you can't you can't argue with it. I mean, I think I'm probably more optimistic about who Sabonis is a player than what it seems like a lot of the internet is in general. But um, I was surprised because I I kind of feel like because of the player that he is, that I felt headed into that week that that might be if that is a move they're going to make that they might need to make it around the draft just because your team is going to need to do a little bit more planning um around him because the offense is going to be built around him a little bit more so I wasn't really expecting him to be moved at February if I'm being completely honest I mean people know that if they listen to the podcast but I mean I don't think people really knew that Tyrese Halliburton was going to be available either which is in part kind of why I try to avoid wading into like hypothetical (laughs) armchair GM conversations yeah because I mean we can sit there and talk about various things. I mean, we did, we talked about some of the stuff that was out there with the wizards and De'Aaron Fox and stuff, but we never brought up Tyrese Halliburton. Like I didn't think he was going to be available in the second year of his contract. So um, yeah, I mean, if it's everything you just said, if you can get a guy that can be your franchise point guard in the second year of his rookie contract and know that you can have him locked up for multiple years. And I mean, everything you're saying too, it's just overall passing feel. I mean, I can point and, and nitpick some things that he's going to need to get better at if he's going to be, you know, their top option, but you could see it right away. There's an inclusiveness that he plays with. And I haven't talked to the players like you have, but I imagine that they really enjoy playing with him because, you know, he, they're, they're going to get the ball. He plays with a certain degree of joy that you can see that's um, very contagious when you're watching the game that makes it even more fun to watch him play. So um, a lot of room to grow with him. So, I mean, I think that they nailed the trade deadline personally. I mean, there was no way to foresee what happened with the Cleveland Cavaliers was going to happen in terms of not getting that pick to convey this year. Um, I think that it would be unfair to have expected the front office to think, oh, yeah, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley and, and even Karras himself are going to get hurt and they're going to slide that far down the standings and then not make it out of the playing tournament. So, Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, I can't criticize them at all. When when that deal was made, I mean, they were, I think Cavs were like 21st. I couldn't see them sliding back seven spots when maybe they were like fourth in the East, fifth, I forget at that time. But they were doing well, but it just hit an injury bug and were looking for someone to put them over the top. And Karras isn't quite that guy, but like that was their end game here, and then the, the fallout and everything, and that's in part why Cleveland obviously included that 31st overall pick, which belongs to Houston as well. Um, I think 
my understanding is if they didn't include that, then the Pacers could have knocked down a couple spots. Maybe it wouldn't have been fully lottery protected, um, but maybe a top 10 protected, for instance, we'll say. But who would have expected that, like you were saying? And with Sabonis trade, the only thing that surprised me, kind of to the point of Tyrese, is I really didn't expect Domas to be moved. I didn't. I thought it would be Miles. However, we all remember that injury that came into the fold, and I think teams, much probably like Vic to a, a lesser degree, you just didn't know what he'd look like. You know, big man, feet, injuries. Would he be even able to help us this season? And if not, there's no point in trading for him midseason. And I think that was kind of the conclusion many teams around the, the league thought. But I still think he has good value. I mean, you can think of some obvious teams around the league that, that could utilize him. But in the other aspect of, of Miles and, and Domas being away now, I'm also very curious to see offensively because he talks a big game, admittedly, there. He says he can do more. No, I'm not expecting 30 points per game, but could he be more of a focal point? Could he knock down more threes? I don't know. Do more pick and roll? I don't know if we want to see that, but I'm, I'm very curious how he'll embrace and attack maybe uh, being the, the lead center, assuming he's back next year. Yeah, and I think that there are certain things that you can point to that have changed for him where I think it's reasonable to expect, you know, a modest bump or for him to be confident about it. Because if you look at the two-point percentages of, like, Goga and Isaiah Jackson and Jalen, those were all up in the minutes when they played with Tyrese Halliburton versus when they didn't, um, which is a little bit more telling, especially with Goga, since he did play before that trade occurred and had a little bit um, higher sample of minutes. I thought you could see ways that um, Tyrese, you know, does the setup of the pick and roll that makes it easier for those bigs to be involved. And also like the spacing, like if you just compare what Sabonis was seeing at the five spot before that trade happened versus the type of spacing that will be around miles at the five spot next year, those types of passes are going to be easier. I mean, I wrote about this in a column, but just a very simple way to look at it. When they played that game against the Wizards that went to overtime where miles scored the 40 points, (laughs) even though he had scored 40 points, Rick Carlisle was using Miles as the first screener, Sabonis as the second screener, and a double drag for Malcolm Brogdon, and minutes where TJ McConnell was out there and in the weak side corner. So if Malcolm comes off of that double screen, Miles' defender, despite the fact that he had scored 40, had one foot in the paint. TJ Warren's defender was all the way over in the paint, and Sabonis is trying to roll into that, and Malcolm is trying to make a pass through very, you know, very tight windows versus like the very first game that Tyrese plays buddy healed as the first screener and spacing out 25 feet you know a deep three-point shooter with Isaiah Jackson as the second screener and Chris Duarte in the weak side corner those weak side defenders aren't going to pull in there that's going to be a very hard decision between leaving buddy even shooting a lower percentage as he did this season and going to tag Isaiah Jackson so you can imagine miles in that situation he is going to have better opportunities now I will say you know piggybacking a little bit off of what you said. I do think there needed to be a little bit more accountability, or I would have liked to see a little bit more accountability in terms of, even if he was playing at the four, I can point to a lot of different plays and actions that they run or their flow game where there was spots in terms of him finding his own usage, where if he wanted to get more shots, he could have been like even, even playing alongside Sabonis, there was opportunities for him to be more involved in the offense than what he was. He just doesn't necessarily always recognize those spots and, and a little bit in his defense there were spots where he ducked in and his teammates just didn't necessarily get him the ball but 
He's not always super active when he needs to play out of pocket to recognize where he needs to be. But, you know, if he's more involved in the action and the plays are more purposely run for him, you know, we'll see what happens next season. I mean, I know there's been a lot of talk about him playing full-time five. I think that we see him play minutes at the five every game. And really, when you look back at it, the last three playoff series that they've been in, Miles Turner has been the solo full-time five. The analogy I, I think about with Miles the last couple of years is it reminds me of George Hill's last year, too, where it was, I bought the real estate in the corner. You told me to do this, so I'm going to stand in the corner and do exactly what you said and nothing more. That's a, a little uh, exaggeration, but that's kind of what it felt like with Miles offensively, kind of pouting a little bit too much, and to the point where didn't we see a couple games at least where Rick would call the first play for him because he knew, yeah. he, he recognized even in past years we saw, if you give the big get him on the board in terms of scoring for the first couple of plays, he's going to be way more productive and happy throughout the game. Yeah, because, I mean, I think before, I mean, and I don't know how long the foot was bothering him. I know that it's been mentioned that there had been some soreness there, but those last several games, especially going through, like, the COVID-depleted area and then before he was out when he played against Phoenix, like, even that night against Phoenix, they ran, like, the first three plays of the game for him, which was against strangely enough like post-ups against switches and then it's kind of what you're saying like it doesn't always feel like he recognizes the right places where he needs to assert himself because you know they they play a game against Cleveland and they're running the play where you know whoever it is let's say it's Dwayne Washington Jr. comes off of Iverson gets the ball and then Kiefer Sykes throws it to him and Miles follows to set a screen on that side he got a switch doesn't recognize hey I can use a quick swim move and that's going to be an easy shot for me and Dwayne was kind of waiting like hey this is a spot for you to get the ball and meanwhile Miles is pointing like hey give it back to Kiefer to run that with Sabonis because that's what the play is so like he's running the play correctly but doesn't recognize like hey there's a spot for you to score so in the sense that you go from that to then you know like I said playing the Phoenix Suns and you're you know running post ups for him to get switches against Dre Jay Crowder or Chris Paul like it did feel like there was a very you know we can go back to the article that I referenced at the top that Jared wrote like I could tell very specifically before that article came out the next morning that they ran the first play of the game for him against the New York Knicks and that he was setting way more ball screens in that particular game than he had been um, involved in prior to so I do think that they tried to accommodate it to an extent it's just it was never going to make total sense because like again I know I bring up a lot of specific reference points but like the overtime game against the Lakers LeBron James is guarding Sabonis they weren't using Sabonis as a lot of his screener because of that they didn't want LeBron switching onto the ball Miles has Carmelo Anthony makes perfect sense to be involving him in the ball so you know he comes they then trap Brogdon and, you know, he kind of mishandles a pass on the slip. And then on the next one, because LeBron's guarding Sabonis and he doesn't really care about Sabonis in the corner, he helps all the way over and strips Miles. So when you have Sabonis and Miles on the floor at the same time, if Miles is involved as the screener, when both of them were available to you, he's he doesn't have the same screening technique as Sabonis. And meanwhile, he's going to have to deal with Sabonis's defender in a lot of situations. So um, I feel like the arrangement that they had made sense for what the roster was, but I do think, you know, you just have to be somewhat optimistic about it and hope that, you know, when he has a playmaker like Tyrese, which he's never been able to play with before, when the floor spacing is going to be different, gets to play under Rick Carlisle's system, that hopefully he sees a little bit more increase than, than what he had been doing 
this past season and the year beforehand. And I think the biggest thing is I'm just glad we can move past the the big, big talk. Like yes. that's been going on for three or four years. We are getting to nowhere. And I could tell even like a couple games in while Rick was asked by visitors announcers again about it, where we had already addressed it when he was hired. It was addressed during his, you know, a couple months later. And then in the training camp, he finally goes, this is an exhausting conversation. Are we just yeah. going to talk about this before every game? It's like, well, Rick, we've kind of been doing that the last several years, yes. <laughs> now this oh, redirection move, and I think it was about time. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I don't blame any of them, like Miles, Sabonis, Rick Carlisle, front office members, anybody that was tired of hearing about the question. <laughs> I was tired of going on various podcasts and being asked the question, let alone just like the night to night from the past three seasons of like, you know, let's argue about which one of them was in in the fourth quarter or why one of them got touches and the other one didn't or like <laughs> just, without, in, yeah, without justifying any, everything. Right. Yeah. And without any nuance of like, OK, there might have been a real reason why, like, it makes total sense that Miles attempted seven threes in the game against the New York Knicks because they had Mitchell Robinson sagging off of him. If Miles didn't play like that, they wouldn't have won the game or like it made sense in the game against Boston when they went with Sabonis down the stretch because that was very early on when Boston, the coverage that we're now seeing where they put Robert Williams on lower usage wings and then will, you know, put the other big onto like the Sabonis. That was very early on. That, the Pacers were one of the first teams they did that against. So when they went with that stretch, like they needed somebody out there when they were doubling Sabonis off of that, who was going to recognize where those cuts were. Torrey Craig was having a very good game. Meanwhile, at the other end defensively, they were blitzing every isolation in the fourth quarter in the overtime, including on the final possession of that game, when I think that they had a, a slight mix-up where Lance didn't get over there quickly enough to double. But they doubled even on the possession when Miles came in there, which tells me that's what they had planned to do, whether they would have closed with Miles or Sabonis. It just made more sense offensively with how Boston was defending and how they were starting to defend to be going with other people that were going to be able to cut and hit shots. Like It just feels like every game, and, and again, in the reverse, I would have understood in the Utah game before Miles got ejected if they closed with Miles and not Sabonis. It made sense for that matchup, but... Um, just from a nuanced sense, like, yes, very glad to not be having the nightly like <laughs> referendums yep. on what each of their net ratings are and plus minuses and why one of them should have been playing and not the other and blah, blah, blah. One thing since you brought it up, I've been very surprised that Rick, after a lot of games of his reference plus minus, because most people, especially those that are deep into stats, hate that number. They're like in small sample size, like I can't. You know, maybe for a month or a couple of months, first 20 games, but the nightly plus minus, that's one thing that surprised me because I know, especially talking with Frank all the time in the past and then even Nate McMillan, that was not something they leaned on. They leaned on defensive rating, turnovers, those sorts of things. Yeah, team team metrics. Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it is a little bit. I, I have heard him bring up the individual plus minuses. Sometimes I feel like it would be like, you know, I think Jeremy Lamb was like plus 19 in the, the win that they had over Oklahoma City. And in Jeremy Lamb's defense, he had a very good game that day. So sometimes I wonder if he brings it up as like a means to make it easy for the fans to understand by like looking at a box score that, hey, Jeremy Lamb was plus 19. And that's how you can tell he had a good game because like otherwise yeah I, I'm kind of with you like I don't I don't take a lot into that I mean even when you look at some of the net ratings with just you know what the Turner Sabonis combination was like there's more that goes into that a lot of times that's going to be influenced by what opponent three-point percentage is so like early in the season their net rating looked better and I do think that Rick did some good things that we hadn't seen the prior two coaching staffs do with the two of them 
but like opponents were not shooting a high percentage from three when the two of them were out there. Once that started to normalize, then the net rating didn't look as shiny anymore. So um, it does, it takes, it takes a lot of minutes sample size for me to actually like raise an eyebrow to something, unless it's just like solidly negative over a long period of time or like, then I'm going to be, Hey, that's probably something you should think about changing or, or making a different roster move there. Yeah. The only one that really stands out to me is if like a player just played awful, you can look down and he's minus 39 and you're like, yeah, yeah that, that basically sounds about right. I saw that. So, otherwise. Yeah. I'm not into that, but he probably referenced it many times. Like I couldn't figure out his end game or the purpose behind it. And I, I wouldn't like it for making it easier for fans in that way, because then they're going to go back to it. Be like, oh, next game, Miles is minus 10. Oh, bad game. It's like, well, again, it's all nuanced, as you just kind of got into there. I'm, I'm curious of the guys that kind of shined late in the season. Which of those guys maybe do you have an optimistic viewpoint about moving forward? The guys like Dwayne Washington Jr., Terry Taylor um, are the main guys that stick out to me. Jalen Smith, that's just such a unique contract. I don't expect him to be back, but we'll see. I think there's enough uniqueness about well I would I would kind of point out too I think O'Shea Brissett and Terry Taylor I'm fairly optimistic about because they are as resourceful as they are as cutters and being able to do multiple things um what I was saying earlier about being able to find your own usage like when they had the blowout win over Boston O'Shea was getting that assignment the the Robert Williams assignment because he was a lower usage wing and Robert Williams is going to roam and he made the six threes. He's not going to make six threes every game, but he is going to make um, cuts every game that are going to be, and, and he doesn't spoil the spacing with the cuts he makes. And sometimes it's not even about him getting the ball in the cut. It's about him doing it in a way that opens up shots for other players on the team. And, and he consistently does it. It's not something that you really, it, it doesn't seem like you need to prod him to do it. So um, I think that he makes sense. I mean, I think some of the things that he does, if he was on a winning team, I think would show up even more. Um, in terms of what he can do as a defender as well, that, you know, he, he's not necessarily a perimeter stopper and he probably still needs to get a little bit stronger to handle people in the post, but he's very good at like that Robert Covington role of kind of hanging out in tall grass and knowing when to pounce from the corners and move sideline to sideline. And if, if you had a stronger overall defensive scheme, I think that that would show up a little bit more and some of his cutting and, and, things that he does in that ilk would also show up more if, if you were, you know, competing, but also makes sense if, if, for the context of they finished this season. And then Terry Taylor, I mean, I wrote a freelance piece about him over the last couple of weeks. Cause I just enjoy so many of the different things that he can do. Mm-hmm. Um, you watch and it, you really have to put it into context. I mean, I included in that piece, like he, he and buddy healed are virtually the same height. So are he and Tyrese Halliburton and, and you watch him set a screen and he's being used as a role man to the degree that he is sometimes even when there are, you know, he and Goga might both be out there to set high ball screens and they'll use, they'll use Terry Taylor as the roller and Goga as the popper. Um, and some, uh, it also manipulated matchups at times where they would kind of pre-switch it and have, you know, Denny Avdia for the wizards would come in guard Tyrese at the end of the game so that they could switch it and make that pass a little bit more difficult because he's so good at, at slipping out of picks against switches. So I think there's more to see from both guys and how they grow. And then you brought up Dwayne Washington Jr. as well. And I don't think it ever hurts, especially with the way Rick Carlisle plays to have 
as many potential shooters on the roster as possible and to evaluate what else they do this summer and, and potentially keep him around as well. And that's been severely lacking. I mean, over the last decade, you just can't have enough shooters in this league. And they've kind of added to that with Buddy. Uh, O'Shea's been somewhat reliable there. Dwayne, obviously. I think all those guys will be in the mix for next year. And I really like O'Shea and what I, I think you said it best, Caitlin, was resourceful. All of those guys are more than just like just their defense or just their shooting. Um, the guys like O'Shea, Dwayne, it's rebounding, it's diving after the ball. I think as you've documented several times, it's the off-ball backdoor cuts and, and guys finding them. And now that you have more featured, better passers like Tyrese, they're looking for that. They're looking for the fine. And so that's been fun. And then uh, talking about Tyrese's passing, the alley-oop, that's a new dimension that this franchise has never had. And I think you tweeted a great note Something like they did more alley-oops this season than they have done the last couple of years combined. That says all you need to know. Yeah, more than the last three seasons combined, <laughs> and I think more than any season since I believe it was the the 13-14 season. I'd have to go back and look at the tweet. But yeah, I just wanted to see that. We were preparing for player review pods, and I was responsible for looking up stuff for Isaiah Jackson. And yeah, they haven't really had that degree of vertical gravity, and hopefully like I'll be curious to see next season, which we could have brought this up in the in the little bit we talked about Miles as well, is how teams will respond to that. Because you could see it in certain circumstances, like the possession I brought up before, where you know defenders are staying attached to Buddy Heald and Chris Duarte. Will he? Will his vertical gravity bring more defenders in, and and then that opens up shots for the three point shooters in ways that we really weren't seeing? Because you talked about, you know not necessarily having credible shooting. That was definitely added, evident at the beginning of the season with where they were with the three-point percentage. And also just like, you know, they go to Phoenix and they're playing Chris Paul and, and he literally looks over at the bench and says they can't effing shoot, like back up. <laughs> like, I mean, that was evident. Like you could just see that. I mean, that's yeah. how much more difficult it was a lot of times for Sabonis to be doing things on the roll or in the post with how much they were sagging off. So the more shooters you can have out there, the better in terms of what it can open up for options. But like if they do end up playing minutes with with Miles and Isaiah Jackson, I'm gonna be really interested to watch um, which one of them draws which assignment. Like if we do see them in four or five units, will Miles actually get to be defended by fives, or will they put fives on Isaiah Jackson because he's gonna be around That's the basket point. more? Yeah. Because you know we look back and like talking about him playing solo five, like even before Sabonis moved into that lineup and it was Thaddeus Young, Thad was being defended by fives. Like if they went to Utah, Rudy Gobert defended Thad. Joel Embiid defended Thad. Um, even in that playoff series against Boston, Aaron Baines was defending Thad. So we really haven't gotten to see a lot of Miles being able to draw um, that assignment and, and have that space against opposing rim protectors who may not come out of the paint. So um, I'm going to be interested to watch how that develops. And I don't even necessarily know, like just on Isaiah Jackson in, in total, how they envision using him next year. If he'll be a backup five to Miles or if they're seeing him more as a four. I mean, I know when they he was initially drafted, they kind of talked about um, seeing him grow into a four maybe, but we didn't get to see a lot of that this season in part because, you know, Sabonis and Miles were both taking up minutes at the five. And then once he had opportunity, they kept having so many injuries that he needed to play minutes at the five. So we didn't get to see a whole lot of him getting to defend opposing fours or, you know, which assignment he would draw if he was out there with another big. Yeah, outside of his shot blocking, I still – kind of to be determined what he looks like defensively. I can't even describe exactly, you know, what he's great at or or things like that defensively or how he helps shape an identity other than, you know, his rim protection, which we saw him dominate with his block shots in summer league. But again, that's just summer league. And to close that point on three-point shooting, I mean, their numbers, uh, attempts are up over the last couple of years. I think six more this season, but that percentage is 
bottom five. And so that's what they need to work on here. In the past, it had always been like one true shooter, whether it's bogey or, you know, whether it's Doug. And Doug didn't even shoot that well, especially at home. But then a complement of players. And to wrap up our conversation, I guess, maybe on the roster here, I'm curious about needs moving forward. To me, I think it starts really with that PG-type player, that the guy out on the wing, the guy that guards LeBron, Giannis. I've been saying that for several years. I think it being more perimeter-oriented and, and the versatility, especially like you were talking about, and being able to switch and all those things, I would really love to see a, a stronger three on this team. Then my next move would be a power four. That absolutely has to be addressed. And it's a position they really haven't had a true four because of T.J. Warren missing all but four games the last two years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's been the hole for a while, that three, four spot. And then also I would point to, to a point of attack defender because we don't know who will be back on the roster, but that's not really what Malcolm Brogdon's strength as a defender is. It's not really chasing over screens and chasing quicker guards. He's better off in a lot of circumstances, defending wings and, and those positions. And the same thing kind of when you look at Tyrese and Chris Duarte, I think that Chris Duarte showed some nice flashes at times where they needed him to pick up 94 feet or needed him to face guard. But I think both of their strengths as defenders is more what they do in off-ball settings and with their anticipation and, and stunts and passing lanes more so than really defending the ball. So I think that that's kind of an area that they could still probably improve on in addition to like what you're saying with the wing position. Because, you know, T.J. Warren was able to do some of that, and they've certainly missed that the last two years when he wasn't available. And that that's a piece of context that goes into, you know. For sure. When Yeah, in the 2020 season, Nate McMillan didn't have, you know, TJ Warren for what, like four or five games versus these last two coaching staffs not having him at all. You know, they did sign Torrey Craig to do some of that, but it can't just be, you know, one bench player who's able to do um, those types of assignments and then asking Justin Holiday at times to punch above his weight class in order to do it before he was traded as well. So, um, yeah, I agree on that front. That's That's got to be where the main areas of need are. And they had that expectation going into this season that TJ would be available, at least for most of it. And I don't think any of us still have a complete picture of what exactly happened with TJ right now and how he is doing, quite honestly. He's super quiet. His agent is super quiet. Pacers really don't want to talk about it. So that's one of my great unknowns for this summer. To wrap things up, Caitlin, I did. Uh, you probably may not be comfortable completely doing this, but I'd like to get to know you a little bit more. You know, you go by C. Cooper, for example, on Twitter. You've always kind of had a mysterious element, I felt. Um, but I did hear, I think it was with the sideline guys you were talking about it and sharing how I think your dad was a high school basketball coach. You were always kind of the kid that was around. So I'm curious, at what point did you decide, hey, let me pivot and turn my not only love but knowledge for the game into writing? Like, Maybe this is something I can do. Yeah, I was done with college around the time where I started writing those fan posts. Okay. Um, I had just graduated and I was kind of like not, I don't want to say floundering, but wasn't really finding a direction for what I wanted to do after I was done studying. And and my sister recommended, she's like, why don't you go back to what? Because when I was in high school, like I really thought long and hard that I wanted to be doing your job. I wanted to do sports reporting and mm -hmm. some stuff happened where my interest in that kind of fizzled a little bit. And then also like just cards on the table wondering like, is that going to be a viable career? Am I going to make money doing that? And so I kind of went away from it and went away from where my interests were both in writing and with sports. And then when college was done, my sister was like, I think you should try doing that. 
Um, so I started writing fan posts and it kind of took off from there. And luckily for me, like I have had some opportunities, like what happened last summer where I was able to contribute and write at 538 and people had thought enough about my work where they were like, Hey, you know, if you have stuff, pitch it to us, we, we would love to publish it. So, um, it really took off from there, I think. So much of what you do also is not in game. It's, it's the day later, it's later that night. Do you prefer watching on tape or however you want to frame it, you know, in synergy over live where you can break it down, rewatch it quickly, those type of things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of cases and what you were saying earlier, like, and I can totally see that because I remember reporting that you did last year that was valuable. That was something I want to see is you're seeing, you know, what guys are doing on the sidelines when the cameras aren't pointed over there. You're seeing facial expressions or whether Nate Bjorkren's assistant coaches are involved. Like (laughs) that's a, that's a, that's a key piece of, of providing fans with information on the team. The same time for me, like a lot of times the cameras point over there and I might see what a play call is, or I might see what a hand signal is. And then that helps me to be able to recognize, um, what they're going to go to. I mean, one that I would point out might be a story that I do. Um, they ran zone this year. They flip flop some between two, three and one, three, one, but you'd see on occasion, you'd be able to look over and, and Rick would call out flash and then they would go, they would trigger man to man out of that zone. So if, if somebody from the opposing team flashed into the paint, that was their trigger that, okay, we're matching up off of that. So it was a really a way that they morphed and I'd really like to track and see how effective that was and what that opened up and left. But, you know, Bally sports tends to, throw the camera over there. And a lot of times in the morning, I'll get up and watch the opposing team's broadcast to see if I can pick up some of those things as well. Cause those little breadcrumbs are fun for me. Like yeah. there was a moment when they're in Atlanta um, that I remember vividly where you could hear Rick call out wide stack, which is basically an away screen. And then they're going to run stack screens or, you know, Spain action where you have the back screener in addition to the roll man. They called that out and Trey young heard it. So Trey young, very, uh, thought he was going to jump that and overreact and Tyrese Halliburton recognized he was going to overreact and he just did a quick left right to left cross to reject it and that was kind of a spot where it's like hey sometimes when coaches call call out a lot of plays there's a benefit to that because then the opponent hears it they think they know what's coming and you can kind of flip those anticipation against them so um, those spots are probably my favorite article that I've written came out of it too because you could see this is like the 18-19 season the Pacers opened the season playing the Nets at a very like breakneck pace and I knew like oh that's probably what everybody's going to talk about because Nate McMillan teams typically don't play very fast, but I had noticed on an out of bounds place that you could literally see Kenny Atkinson say WTF. Um, (laughs) But it wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't saying it in like a way to be cursing. And I thought that was a very odd way to put that out there. And then the more research I did, I was like, Oh, that's actually a sideline play that the Pacers run that he was calling out and they had to adjust on the fly. So those little tiny niches and details I like to tell, and hopefully people like to read them. But yeah, in a lot of cases, it is going to be beneficial for me to be watching it on a screen and be able to rewind and see like, did I actually see what I thought I saw and be able to clip that right away and store it versus being in person. What is your storage like? Because you you clearly have an, a deep archive, I feel like, from some of the stories we've seen, right? Where all of a sudden you'll see a, an in-game play, you know, second quarter, 10-minute mark, and you're like, Oh, yeah, Um, especially last year with Nate Bjorkman. Oh, yeah, the Raptors, Nick Nurse ran that during the postseason last time. Here's that play. It's like, what the hell? (laughs) Yeah, that that was another fun one because on the very first game of the season, when the Pacers played the Hornets, they ran that into gameplay that didn't end up working out for Sabonis to use the fake handoff. And that was the exact same play call that Nate Bjorkman called against the Celtics that worked. And last year when I wrote that article about the play, Nick Nurse ran that for Jonas Valanciunas or not Nick Nurse, Dwayne Casey ran it for Jonas Valanciunas as uh, 
when Nick Nurse was an assistant. So you can see this lineage, which then made me question, because Dwayne Casey ran it for Jonas Valanciunas, did he originally get it from Rick Carlisle when he was an assistant in Dallas? So, yeah, I just I clip anything that I think is interesting, and then I save a lot of it externally um, out on streamable. So I don't have to keep it on my hard drive, and then I can go back and look through it. That's awesome. You're also known for your sad Jeff Teague. And I feel like there was something else before that as well. But those are just kind of uh, fun things that have been far too relatable, I would say, for Pacers fans over the last two years. Yeah, sad Jeff Teague I've actually offered up as a sacrifice. I don't know if you saw that. I I did, and I was laughing about that. because I've committed myself (laughs) to retire him permanently if they get a top three pick next Tuesday. I think it would be so fitting. I'm a big karma guy, and I'm like, hey, look, Pacers have played, quote-unquote, by the rules the last, like, 31 years, uh, other than going back before last year. It reached the playoffs 25 of 31 years, one of my favorite stats. I feel like they're due to get the payoff versus, like, the Cavaliers who were, like, the top pick for three of five years. Like, I feel like the Pacers are due for decent luck, but then I remember the fever, and they have zero luck at all. So I don't know what to expect next week. Yeah, I feel like that the luck should be in their favor. I feel like all of that karma should have built up from all these years of, you know, not tanking outright and – and so I've, I've done what I can do, Scott. I've offered the sad Jeff Teague meme. It's up, it's up to the lottery balls to decide if that's going to remain part of my internet existence or not. As Nate McMillan would say, it's, it's up to the basketball gods, and you don't cheat the basketball gods, right? I always found <laughs> exactly. that a great quote of his and why he got into that. But very good, Caitlin. I appreciate all the time. Um, hate to keep you longer, but I, I th- I've been wanting to do this for so long, get deep into you and also deep into Pacers stuff as we kind of wrap up last year and look ahead Starting next week now, draft lottery, and it kind of turns into next season. Yeah, looking forward to actually being able to focus on next season. And hopefully, I mean, something we didn't even touch on is how many of these seasons to you have felt very segmented? Like, I was looking back on that in preparation for this. Like, go back to the 1920 season. It was all about, you know, waiting for Oladipo to get healthy and come back. And, you know, the segment two being to, you know, reintegrate him and then hopefully they can hit a stride. Then the next season, it was kind of everybody knew, like, they're going to trade Oladipo. And then you're getting Karras back. <laughs> yeah. And then he obviously had the health situation. Another very segmented season. Last season, you knew going into it that TJ Warren and Karras Levert weren't going to be available. Kind of had going to have to, you know band-aid things until hopefully they can come back which never actually happened and i just hope that next season they can head in with a roster where they know what the roster is going to be they know what type of team they want to be and then you can find out how good they are rather than it always just feels like you're waiting on one domino or another to drop i mean even last year waiting for the trade deadline to finally happen yeah we've been in a holding pattern that's all such a very good point and the other thing that we can both relate to the thing i hope and i don't mean that it's intentionally deceptive But I hope there's more clarity moving forward from the Pacers, whomever it is, whether it's the front office or Rick, because we what we don't need. And I'm talking media and fans alike here is we don't need the quote. It's going to be a matter of weeks and not months. Why not come out and just say, hey, we don't expect to see him for a couple of months. Then if he beats that, guess what? There you go. But on top of that, what I hope is, like you said, that there is some more fluidity to the seasons. And on top of that, it is more basketball talk rather than I felt like I've been on the injury beat the last three years. I've learned a ton about injuries, whether it's strains, whether it's Malcolm Brogdon's like hip thigh injury to end the season a couple of years ago, navicular fractures. I had no idea what that was. I feel like that's what I've written more about than anything basketball related. Yeah, a lot of injury updates. I do agree, like the handling of certain things. Like I generally think that it's best for, you know, 
you want people when you're in media, you want people to talk as much as possible so you can have an idea of what they're planning and it makes it easier to evaluate. I think this year there was a lot of sound bites out there like that people would reply on like any tweet I had where we're hearing about, you know, glorified role player or love this little team or weeks, not months, or this ain't P or whatever it is that just dominated like the entire season and made it very hard to just, you know, focus on the day to day, which I think is kind of the NBA in general that, you know, it's, it's not a lot about the game at hand. It's about projecting and looking forward. I feel like that's where a lot of the coverage is the next free agency period, the next draft, the next trade deadline um, versus, you know, caring as much about every, yeah. yeah, caring every, about every regular season game. So um, I'm somewhere in the middle where, you know, after the draft lottery is over, I'm assuming we'll probably hear from somebody from the front office and, and I'd like to hear what they see and what um, direction they want to go in. But at the same time, like, I don't know that all of those little sound bites were particularly helpful, Scott. You're right. And countless times, I mean, especially late in the season, you'd put out anything Pacers, right? We would. And you get a tanking, like, gif. And it's like, all right, like, don't you kind of want this, by the way? <laughs> That's the other thing. Like, it'd be like players not playing. It's like, yeah, no crap. Like, of course he's not. Do you want him to? So I got tired of those tanking emojis or gifs. Oh, yeah, that was a, that was a nightly occurrence as well. It's like, what are we doing and- here? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was it was honestly a little bit shaking my confidence. I mean, people know I took a social media break for about a month during the middle of the season because it was just it was hard to know, like, what is my fit? Do, do I actually fit with what I'm doing? Because there were so many people telling me, like, I don't care about the basketball this team's playing anymore. Like, these guys aren't going to be on the roster next season. Then even after, like, everybody wanted trades to happen, and then even after the trades did happen, it was like, well, they're not going to be good for the rest of this season, so then I'll pick up next year, which like, I'm not trying to tell anybody how to enjoy a hobby or how to fan or enjoy a team, but like, am I, when am I allowed to talk about the basketball that the team's actually playing? I need permission to. Like, am I in the clear? Like, What are we doing? You're right. And then the, the Herb Simon quote, I'm not a big fan of. I think that's just an older person. That's how they yeah. speak. And, and he said he used little like five different times in our conversation. By the way, that's something I need to get back to because there was about, I don't know, that was a 40-minute conversation, and I think all anybody remembers is that one sentence. Yeah, because I remember when I opened your newsletter about it and I read the entirety of what he said. I mean, and we had talked about this on our podcast that like, I understood mostly what he was coming from. And like before that report had come out, I would assume that like most people thought like he has a distaste for tanking, but I mean, it felt pretty clear after you read the whole thing that they were going to be open to making trades if things didn't change, or at least that was my impression. Like if, if they didn't turn the corner that when the trade deadline came that he realized like, yeah, we're going to let Kevin Pritchard, you know, make the trades that need to be made. And he was true to his word. That was basically what he was saying. He was like, there's no fire sale here. We are evaluating everything, and if things don't turn favorably, we're absolutely going to have to consider alternatives, and guess what they did? And I thought what they did at the trade deadline, they aced all three moves, so it was impressive what they were able to do and productive. So so what you're telling me is there wasn't reason to get preemptively angry online for trades that hadn't been made yet? Right. Yeah, no kidding. And then the other thing that I also hate is just the random, why couldn't I go to exit interview day without hearing about what Russell Westbrook coming to the Pacers? Like... That's the stuff that's exhausting as me as someone on the beat. And then I get asked questions about that. I'm like, do you realize that makes zero sense, right? But yet there's a talking point rather than something else. That's stuff me and you, I think, hear probably about more than most uh, just being on this beat, for example. But you're right. That that was a great point to wrap up here is just how segmented everything has been the last two or three years. And the bigger point here moving forward is what this franchise can do to keep star players. 
I think that's a bigger talking point, right? Because Victor's gone. PG's gone. Domas is gone. That's a concern, I think, or at least should be. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting point because I would like to get your perspective because you're in this. You're around these guys. Because I don't know if you saw any of the Sacramento exit interviews at all or any of the quotes that came out of there, but Sabonis did mention that, like, they had asked, like, would you want to be part or, you know, asked about the coaching search? And he said that he would. Like, he'd like to offer input. And then he talked, too, about, you know, I'm going to set up times to work out with Jaron Fox this summer and get other guys together. And that didn't necessarily seem like, at least from my outsider's perspective, that that was necessarily occurring with the Pacers the last two years. And, like, I understand from his perspective, he was getting married last summer. He hadn't been able to see his family in Lithuania because of what the COVID situation was. But just kind of wondering, you know, why is he being so adamant to take up that mantle now but wasn't really – you know, at least not from our eyes, you know, doing more of the vocal leadership with the Pacers. And yeah. what, what was leading to that? So for one, a lot of the individual stuff like that, the context and like full insight, we've lost because we don't have locker room access. That is the stuff, just casual conversations. What are you up to the off season? What new shoes are you getting? Like those things can lead to some of my best stories. That's why I'm so adamant that we get locker room stuff back. But to your point, I think the biggest contributing factor in all of that was just the uncertainty of the seasons and then COVID the last couple of years. Now, before that, I don't know. Because Domas, he had a terribly busy offseason last year. Not only was he getting married, but he also had national team responsibilities, right? right? They were trying to qualify. So he was gone most of the time. And before that, Bill Baino, um, team's assistant sports performance coach, would fly out to Lithuania and spend like several weeks, a month with him. So there was a relationship with the Pacers and Domus, but no, there was not these organized activities. And so kind of to your point, Caitlin, I think it is notable that, I mean, almost daily now we're getting Pacer tweets with photos of guys hanging around. Now it is younger guys. It is also guys that are not starters outside of Tyrese Halliburton. Yeah. So those guys have to earn it every single day. It's not like it's Miles for example, who basically spends the first couple of months of the offseason traveling. They did do that one organized activity out uh, on the west side of L.A. last year, organized by Malcolm. But for the most part, that was it. I would pin it, though, mostly, Caitlin, on the last couple of years just being so much uncertainty and you value your own time because you don't know when next season starts. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, I do think, too, yeah, that's definitely been a change, seeing as much as Tyrese has been in those photos. And I don't think it – I definitely don't think it hurts, but – like being on the coaching profile beat for two years now. <laughs> yeah, you, you had to write like five different profiles. And then, of course, by the way, they hire a wild card, which stunned coaches and agents across the league. They were stunned by Nate Bjorker and getting it. Right. Like that was one that I didn't even write. And same thing last year. Like I already had ones done about Terry Stotts and Steve Clifford. And then like it was within a day and they're like, oh, yeah, we're hiring Rick Carlisle. But um, no, I, knowing this, like I did research and Steve Clifford, I had seen him talk or had notes from a clinic where he had a really good quote that I found interesting with what you just said, where he was said that chemistry is the most misused word in coaching, that it's not about eating meals together. It's about how many players on the team are willing to put winning above all else. And then he had kind of mm. used an example where when he was an assistant in Orlando, understand Van Gundy, when they went to the finals, that there was players on those teams who didn't even communicate, but they were willing to sacrifice things for winning. And then he said when he was in Charlotte, that they had guys who would go out to dinners every night and, you know, got together in the summers, but it wasn't a winning program. He's like, you know, team chemistry is what you're seeing on the sidelines. It's role acceptance. It's, you know, 
again, how many sacrifices you're willing to use. So like some of that last summer, like I certainly don't think it hurts if Malcolm Brogdon organizes that, or if he's saying like, you know, we're going to set up more dinners on the road. Like, I don't think it's a negative, but I don't necessarily think it draws a direct line to, I mean, based on what we saw at the beginning of the year, it didn't seem from an on-court perspective that that was always necessarily a very connected team or that everyone was satisfied in what roles they had. Yeah, absolutely. To go back, three C's, they they didn't have those with what Nate McMillan was talking about with the three C's, the connected connectivity. Um, and what I'm seeing here in the postseason you're seeing a lot of those teams, the Bostons, Milwaukee's, Phoenix, that have been in it for a while now, two, three years together, and that's been lost because of the huge roster turnover. I think I tweeted it or talked about it recently. Goga's the second longest tenured player on the team, and I really that's don't expect wild. for him to be back. And so so then you got a couple players 2020, I think. Then you have to go back to 2015 with when Miles was drafted, and that's your core. And so you're kind of restarting whatever you want to say, the chemistry, continuity, the comfortability with one another. We see with the Warriors, Draymond knows exactly how to get Steph a shot. Pacers don't have that kind of similarity. Of course, those are Hall of Famers, so it's a little different, but that's the point. Yeah, absolutely, when you start having people around more. A whole other question, too. I mean, I know I'm going off on a few tangents here. I'm good with this as long as you have the time. (laughs) I'm great. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, that, that story that Kevin Arnovitz wrote over at ESPN, it would be interesting to hear Kevin Pritchard's opinion on that or our other executives around the league where he kind of talked about, you know, this playoffs being one about, you know, super teams not necessarily working out. You know, we have the Brooklyn Nets getting swept out of the first round. The Lakers don't even make the playoffs, you know, stars teaming up versus, you know, building cultures are what we started off talking about. And, you know, seeing Memphis take these steps forward and building through the draft and, and whether – you know, teams are going to be wanting to, I mean, I guess the premise of the article mostly was that there's a benefit to, if you are going to add a star, having the established players there, like, you know, LeBron comes to Miami, but Dwayne Wade was very much heat culture. He had been there all along versus, you know, you look at Brooklyn and Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving come in and they haven't been there for, you know, Karis LeVert, D'Angelo Russell, Jared Allen, and what Kenny Atkinson had built there. And then it becomes new. And, and whether, you know, teams are going to be as willing to go after that. I tend to think if you can get stars, you're probably going to do it, even Absolutely. if you are in a small market. But at the same time, I do think that there are some trade-offs there. And what we're seeing is that, that those types of cultures do matter. Especially for this market, for Memphis, for Phoenix. Those are your perfect examples with this franchise, I think, even the Cavs, because this isn't L.A., it's not New York, you're not going to get those guys in free agency. What I think you hope is you build up a culture, you build up winning ways, you develop and grow players to the point where maybe a guy like Tyrese can recruit a buddy over, that type of thing. But that's kind of your best-case scenario that I think you have to grow from within, and we need to see more player development, not just guy drafted in the second round or undrafted becomes the 12th man. You need to see somebody take a huge leap um, like several different players have had in this postseason. And by the way, Tyrese, Buddy, neither one of them have, have experienced that postseason. And so that's something where not only do you change your image and, and become more of a national, I don't want to say brand, but national featured player maybe, you get that attention you deserve. But th- it's also a whole different level of playing, and neither one of those guys have experienced that just yet, which is kind of surprising. And it definitely sounds like Tyrese is like at least had some information that they want to try to make the playoffs next year, whether they can is another question, but in his little interview sit down that he mm-hmm. had um, Pacers.com with Pat Boylan, he talked about, you know, watching the playoffs and how much he's going to work to do everything he can to get there and how much he wants to experience that. So um, 
definitely seems like somebody who's going to be putting in the the elbow grease over the summer. Absolutely. I love the fact that, you know, Tyrese and, and Buddy and O'Shea went to the Bahamas together, but then there some of them are back here already and working out and, and doing all that stuff. So that's what you like to see. I always felt that, you know, guys like Lance, CJ Miles, I remember specifically in the past, the summer's they spent the majority of the time here in Indy and at the practice facility. That was when they took a big leap within their career. Maybe it's just a coincidence or whatever, but I think there's something very real to that versus going out, going out on your own. And, and to your point earlier about you know continuity or chemistry, right now is when that can start because you didn't have those team meals two years ago and you didn't have those opportunities to hang out as much as you could. And when you were playing on the court, at 37 different starting lineups this year. Uh, you know, all kinds of different lineups. More, m- one of my other favorite stats is they had more players on the roster than wins, and so it's really hard to establish a lot of that. That's a wild number, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can you can see a difference too. I mean, you just look at the difference between Tyrese playing with Buddy and Tyrese playing in like that eight game sample size with Malcolm Brogdon. Awful, like yeah. you know, Buddy. He had experience playing with him. I mean, he's that's who he's been with since the start of his career, which is obviously very short. It's just his rookie season and this season. But that carryover, you could tell a difference with versus like I broke down the numbers and I didn't want it to be what it was. But you look at the eight game sample size of Malcolm Brogdon. They got outscored by 17 points per 100 with the two of them out there. Um, there were a net negative, I believe, in all of those games, but the one that they played against Boston and maybe one other one, and they were a net negative in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter. Um, it just it wasn't a great reflection. And in part, I think that there are some schematic things you can point to there, but also like they didn't have a training camp together. They didn't have time to build any of that in the same way that you could already see it um, carrying over from Tyrese having played in Sacramento with Buddy. So. And maybe a good way to wrap it is mentioning their fourth quarters and how they were the worst team in clutch time. And a lot of that time comes with trust and uh, assuredness of what one another is going to do, I think. And that was a missing link this year. And I, I think as they build up a little bit more and play more together, you're going to have more success. Because that was one of the big storylines this season. We didn't really even have to touch on it. Yeah, I mean, the clutch time. I mean, I felt very early on, and the reasons for why they were poor in the clutch changed after the trade deadline since before. But, I mean, that was one of the stories that I wrote very early that I didn't think it was just about bad luck. You could see that, you know, the way that the roster was constructed, why they were having problems doing things at the end of the games, and just from, you know, some of the stuff that we mentioned before. There was times in in some of those quarters where you could watch, and it would be a combination of things, but how are you like messing up a defensive coverage? You're not on the same term to be playing. Like you shouldn't, it was stuff that was happening that shouldn't happen in the first quarter, let alone with like three minutes left on the clock in the fourth quarter on the defensive end. And then offensively, you know, some of that you can look at like that's the three game stretch that I always point to is when they went to New York and they went to Detroit and they barely scored 10 points like in those fourth quarters and teams were really extending the pressure and like Malcolm having trouble with his burst handle combination to get into stuff quicker and where they were able to find points. And then, you know, once the roster turns over, I'm not really expecting as much like high level execution and clutch time from a lot of young players, but you know, you could see some of that again, what you're mentioning, like they're up in Detroit once the trade happens and they're just running like tons of isolations at Isaiah Stewart and not able to get to the next thing and really pinpointing like, What's the cause of that? You know, why are you running a one and done action? And a lot of it's either ending in shots for Malcolm Brogdon or Buddy Heald. And how do you get to the next thing? Um, and and how do you see Tyrese fitting in? Is he somebody who's going to be taking a lot more shots? Is his usage going to go up? Is he going to defer in those situations? 
you know, why was the offense tilting in the ways that it was? I think that those are all important questions that the Pacers are going to have to answer as they head into the offseason. For sure, and I think he's probably just going to read the room. And if he needs to take over, he will. If it's another guy's having a hot night, he's a guy that's happy to defer and type thing. But to the clutch minutes, I even bookmarked the NBA stats for this moment. Um, or, you know, because it was such a huge topic of conversation and cause for concern all season, 11 and 34, which means 45 of their games, over half qualified for clutch, and they lost the majority of them. Their defensive rating, Caitlin, 114.4. Yeah, that's atrocious. But thank you so much for your time, Caitlin. I appreciate it. People can find you, what, at Indy Cornrows and Indy um, Cornrows Podcast? Yep. My handle's at C2 underscore Cooper. Excellent. Thank you, Caitlin, and uh, always good to have you on this Pacers Beat. Good stuff. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right, thanks for listening to the Fieldhouse Files podcast. As I said, it went much longer than I anticipated, but I really enjoyed that fun conversation covering a number of different topics relating to this franchise. And I appreciate Caitlin's work and her willingness to come on. I'm now headed to Chicago for the draft lottery and the combine, and I'll have full coverage at fieldhousefiles.com, so subscribe there so you can be sure to get every story direct to your inbox. Otherwise, I'll talk to you again soon from Chicago.